The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're having one of our coffee talks with somebody who has earned quite a name amongst investigators in male fertility and in the world of reproductive research in general, Dr. Nicolás Garrido. Dr. Garrido obtained his PhD from the University of Valencia and won the 2002 Extraordinary Prize for it. He also has a master's degrees in research methodology, design and statistics, in science and innovation management, and in project management. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Valencia and has authored over 350 abstracts, more than 80 book chapters, and over 160 publications. Dr. Garrido is the recipient of numerous awards for his contributions to the field of reproductive medicine, and is an associate editor for Fertility and Sterility, as well as reviewer for several other journals. He has served as the director of the Andrology Lab and the Sperm Bank at TV Valencia for 16 years. He has led the EV Teaching Program and the EV Learning Center, and he's now the director of research administration at EVRMA Global, as well as the director of EV Foundation. Dr. Garrido, thank you so, so much for having coffee with us today and taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Andres. It's my pleasure. You, you started off your career by studying biology, then you went to Germany for a year. At which point did you decide to focus on male reproduction and in, in reproductive medicine specifically? Well, uh, this is a, a fun story. I mean, I joined DV uh, on 1997. And uh, just uh, because I was recommended by my colleague, the famous uh, Dr. Marcos Meseguer. So he joined DV just one week before I did. And uh, he uh, started working on his PhD with Carlos Simon. And uh, at that time, Dr. Uh, Antonio Bellicero was looking for someone to conduct a PhD on, on endometriosis. So at the, the uh, 1997 year, I started my PhD doing basic research on endometriosis, which is a, a, a very different field to what I'm doing today. Uh, at that time, uh, I started with, you know, collecting granulosa cell samples at the IVF lab and follicular fluids and analyzing interleukines and that stuff. And uh, about two, three years later, Dr. Pellicer took me once and said, hey, guy, I'm going to change entirely your focus, and you need to become the best expert on spermatology in Spain and in the entire world. And I said, okay, guys, so how should I do that? And this was the, the very beginning. So I joined the, the clinic, the EB Valencia Clinic. I first finished my, my PhD experiments and presented the thesis and defended my thesis. 
and join the, the EV Valencia clinic in order to start running both the research on sperm and also the, the andrology laboratory that at that time was a part of the, of the hormone laboratory. So this was the, 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 the very beginning and how I ended up on, on, on studying male, male fertility. Now, when you, when you started, like you said, it was, it was 1997, what, what was your day like then? What was a typical day for, for Dr. Garrido at the time? Oh, I, I love this this time in, in my life because, you know, you were young, you were happy, you had a lot of illusion on, on these new things coming. And uh, I worked endless hours. And uh, I remember the first week I made uh, alarms at EV RMA uh, jump because I went on a weekend in order to change the social media. No one told me the alarm was on. And I provoked the police coming here to look to what was happening. And uh, the point is that my typical day was, uh, as I think any other PhD student. So very early in the beginning, I went to the IBF lab meeting where the cases for the day were going to be discussed. I was looking through the medical charts for the patients to be recruited for my thesis. So looking for patients with and without endometriosis and then planning the whole day in the IVF lab to recruit samples. And then in the afternoon, in a very small lab we have in the Faculty of Medicine in the University of Valencia, which was at that time very close to, to EV Valencia, in order to conduct the, 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 the molecular analysis. I mean, the ELISAs, the PCRs, and all the stuff I, I had to do at that time with, with my, my PhD work. It was, it was fun. It does sound like fun. You've gone from you've gone from there to being the director of EV Foundation and the research administration of uh, of EVRMA Global. How how did that happen to go from PhD student to here? Did you ever have this vision that you would be here today? Was it kind of an accident? How did how did this happen? I think people having a big vision is not. Uh, I mean, this is not true. This does not happen. I mean, I, I think at least this was my case. Uh, I found myself here in front of you talking about this almost 25 years later. In my wildest dreams, I hadn't imagined this, uh, this was possible. But I think this was a step-by-step -step process. There's not an overnight uh, kind of uh, change like, like this. I started uh, with a PhD, then in the Andrology Lab in, in EV Valencia. But at that time, a few years later, I took also care of the, the, the teaching department at that time. So this was a, a kind of not global thing because EVRMA was not global at, at that time, kind of national thing where you took a lead of, of all the courses and the master's degrees that at that time, there were kind of 20 courses, a couple of master's degrees. And uh, I remember my, my objective was just to improve and uh, increase the number of teaching activities. This was the very beginning. And we were able to increase from 20 to more than 100 courses at that time. And then from two master's degrees to seven different master's degrees. I think this was the first step. But I think there's another second key step on this process from the PhD student to the EB Foundation director 
which was one meeting Dr. Pellicer and I had something like nine years ago when I when I said, Dr. Pellicer, hey guys, we need to organize and structure research here. We are becoming increasingly big and bigger and bigger and bigger. We have a lot of potential, a lot of people doing research, a lot of resources, and we need a common structure. At that time, I got my master's degree on, on, on statistics and epidemiology. And uh, once Dr. Carlos Simon decided to join iGenomics and, and, and left the EB Foundation five years, almost five years ago, probably I was the best profile because I touched all these different aspects of the clinic, of research, of teaching, which is the core of EV Foundation. So it's not an overnight thing, it's a kind of process that lead me to, to the, current, the current position. This was not imagined, I mean, this was something that came after, after the years. Right, now if, to somebody who is today in the position in which you were in the 90s, and you know, who's currently a PhD student, they are, doing all this work, they're working in the lab at strange hours um, and tending to their experiments and sending a paper and getting it rejected and all of that, um, that happens to all the PhD students in the world. Yes. What, what would be your, your advice for a PhD student who is there now? Very appropriate question. Here in the, in the EB Foundation, we kind of belong to the health institute, the research institute in Hospital La Fe in Valencia. It's a big hospital. I think it's the fourth in Spain, something like that. A lot of researchers, a very powerful structure. And they created kind of structure, which is uh, mentoring young PhD students. So you have mentors and mentees. And our position is exactly answering the question you are bringing now to me. So which is the advice for these young people that probably are not aiming to the five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now? It's a, a number of things. In my view, you need to work hard, obviously. No one is giving you anything in a silver platter. You need to be resilient. You need to adapt and be ready to get negative uh, you know, feedback and, and, and efforts without any price, just an immediate, you know, immediate price. And I think now people want things very fast. And this is not the way life works. I think all the effort come uh, rewarded after several, several years. So resilience is key, hard work is key. And the smart move is trying to identify things that people need and try to cover the gaps and the needs. And this is what some people call uh, entrepreneurship, but there are two kinds of entrepreneurship. One's, one type is uh, when you are building your own company. But I think the second one is within your company. So. It's very important in order to progress, in my view, identify what is needed within your company and then get ready to do this. This is the example, for instance, with the statistics. 
I studied statistics 10 years, 15 years ago, because I felt the whole company need people who is able to assist on this, on this matter. Now we are managing research because at some point, the big company we are becoming needed some management on, on the sciences, the science they are producing. So this is, uh, generally speaking, the advice for, for these young people. They are, should not expect something for the next year or in two years. This is uh, slowly cooked. Let's, let's say it like, like that. Absolutely, and, and slow-cooked meals end up tasting very good. EVRMA is, is currently the world's single biggest investor in IVF research. How, how is that organized? I know you were talking about the need for organization and coordination in such a big company. How is all of that science produced, organized, and managed to produce something meaningful that can then be used in the clinic properly? It's difficult, but it's easy. I mean, if you have a clear outcome and then you aim to that, I think you need to initially see what is needed. And what do you need for such a big company in order to, to manage somehow the science? Well, I need to keep researchers creative, be very precise into the budgets and the monetary things optimize resources, coordinate things, and then you need to build a system in order to fulfill all these needs. And I think to some extent, we need it. I mean, within EVRMA, we have a full list of ongoing projects. So far, at, that, at this moment in time, probably we are speaking about 350 things going on simultaneously in the different locations that we work with. This means the clinics, the research centers at New Jersey, at Oxford, Madrid, Valencia, each of uh, each and every clinic, it's a, a, a research center itself. So first of all, we need to be aware of everything that's going on. So when we receive a proposal for, from some researcher, we know if there's something similar going on in order to to make both uh, synergistic uh, efforts in, into one single project, or if there's enough space in order to conduct two separate projects. So this is key in order to optimize the, the effort. Second, we have a very huge structure and a very clear, transparent, and uh, agile way of looking for funding. We can have intramural funding, so any researcher knows the way to bring a proposal to our scientific advisory board and then get a very fast answer and then get his or her research supported financially just in case we feel at the scientific advisory board that this is a relevant topic for research within our company. But apart from that, we also have access to several public uh, calls in order to get grants for either PhD students, postdoc students, or research projects, mainly in, in, in Spain. So all this structure is now permitting publishing more than 200 papers per year, having 
almost 200 abstracts per year in the main scientific congresses worldwide. And this is the way we are working with, with, with the management of, of, of our science uh, within the, the, the company. I think now the, the, the pathway is very clear and uh, anyone through the company, I like to say that uh, a, a couple of paper statements about, about that. First of all, we need less doctors and biologists and embryologists, and probably we need more engineers. So we need to be creative, but we need to control creativity. Because, you know, people frequently get excited with new things and new projects and new stuff. But at that point in time, I feel it's very, very relevant, very important for a company, a big company like us, deciding exactly what deserves to be studied. And then once you identify the opportunity, then go for it. And leave apart those less relevant things that are not bringing a, a, an added value for, the, for the, the company. I think there's some misunderstood and underestimated concept, which is the opportunity cost. Is what you pay because you are wasting your time doing things that are not bringing an, an added value. So this is generally speaking the way we deal with, with the management of, of the science, obviously also providing the researchers with the best scenario in order to conduct research and trying to provide them with uh, any kind of asset, any kind of technology, uh, facilities, uh, technical support, scientific support in order to transform their ideas into knowledge that is relevant for our clinical practice. Now, I wanted to ask you a bit of a follow-up question on that and a little bit more about those structures that support the researchers at, at EVRMA. There's, there's a unit called WAHI, or yeah. if, it's, if it's acronym in Spanish, the Research yeah. Support and Management Unit, um, which is, as a researcher from EVRMA, I can tell you both loved and hated yeah. almost to equal degree. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're what, right. What, um, what, what does it do? How does it, how does it provide um, added organization and how does it help the company organize all of its research? Okay, so, you know, the acronym, as you said, uh, states for Research Support and Management. So we have two kinds of uh, tasks. One is supporting research. The second is managing research. In order to support research, we provide the researchers any kind of administrative help, uh, data uh, extraction from the clinical database uh, we have for, uh, at EVRMA, statistical analysis support in order to, you know, conduct the statistics, uh, prepare the tables, the figures for the papers, uh, provide with the approaches uh, to analyze the data and that kind of stuff. We also provide with uh, the support in order to monitor the clinical trials. And uh, we also provide legal advice for all kinds of, of research. You, you know that there are kind of simple research when you are dealing with retrospective studies where you just get the info from the database, 
no intervention for the patients. These are the, probably the simplest projects, but we are dealing with very complex projects, not only interventional projects, uh, including randomized control trials. We are testing some drugs, but we are also testing some therapies. We are, test we are testing some devices and we are doing advanced cell therapies projects. And this is involving frequently either oocytes, sperm, embryos. So any project, each project, it's a, a very different world and needs to be handled and managed and the legal requirements and all the, the administrative environment for this in order to guarantee to some extent safety, not only for our patients, which is first, but also for our researchers and our company, because we have the accumulated experience of the whole group. So what we've learned with some researcher could be applied to some other bringing a similar, a similar problem. Right, so it can be a way of kind of centralizing all the research from the group so that one end knows what the other end is doing, kind of. Exactly, exactly. I like to say that we usually are good at connecting the dots. So we have a, a, an idea and the knowledge of what everyone is doing, and you can recommend things because of the good experience or the bad experience of some previous researchers. Right. It goes it goes back to that idea of it goes back to that idea of kind of reducing redundancy and trying to be synergistic with what everybody can provide. Exactly. For instance, and then we have the bad part. The bad part is the one related with, hey guys, you need to bring the budget before you spend some money on research. Hey guys, you need to adhere to this. Hey guys, you need to report so that. And this is, you know, but in again, in a big company, this is necessary because optimizing the resources leave more space for our researchers to conduct research. Right. Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, um, kind of go, go back to, to your origins and to when things started. I, I've heard a story about the first time you went to the United States and uh, you went to the first, uh, for the first time to your ASRM Congress. And I, I believe you were coming back from New York and you missed the flight or something happened. I think, okay, the, the very good research work for you, I mean, very good. Not exactly. We almost missed a flight because we were wrong on the date and we just came to the airport one day later. And then we said, hey guys, our, uh, uh, our boarding pass. And they said, hey guys, you three are the ones that yesterday we were waiting for. So we got kind of crazy. Oh, we, we were wrong in, 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 the, in the date. So this is a good research from your side. This is not a widely known story, but yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, that that's what I heard. I heard that trip was fun. I heard you stayed in a in a pretty in a pretty low cost motel in the Bronx. Something. Of course, at that time we had no money, so <laughs> yeah, it's very it's a very big thing for me at that time. I mean, uh, we were coming to the U.S. and and. This was even unthinkable when I was studying. Me, the U.S., what, what are you talking about? So, yeah, yeah. I, had, I, I was lucky because I, I shared this trip with, with my colleague Marcos Maseguera and, and Julio Martin. 
now working at, at iGenomics. Nice guys, both of them. That's that's amazing. And I wanted to talk to you about um, an institution that is very, very near and dear to you. We, when we see research publications coming out of, uh, of EVRMA Global in general, we see a lot of affiliations like EVRMA Valencia or New Jersey or Madrid, but what is EV Foundation? Well, EV Foundation is, uh, is the nonprofit foundation that EV raised uh, 23 years ago, something like that, 24 years ago. And this was the way at EV uh, research was conducted. So Dr. Pellicer and Dr. Uh, Remoy created this nonprofit foundation in order to get funding for research and to build a, a, a physical location uh, with the laboratories and hire the researchers at that time, very you know, early in the 90s in order to start what at the time was the research department of EV. Of course, this was located in Valencia and uh, as the company grows, there were more and more locations, but I think we can differentiate two kinds of researchers and please don't take me wrong with, with, with that. The point is we have professional researchers and let's say amateur researchers. And this is not because of the quality of the research they do, but I mean professional researchers to those people who only work on research. This is what we have here at EB Foundation. People who is 100% of their time working on research projects. And then we have a lot of extremely good clinicians and embryologists that apart from their clinical tasks, also conduct research. But this is not 100% professional. Their tasks and their main aim and work is basically the clinical part, right? So at EV Foundation, we have the professional researchers. We have several research lines. We have six principal investigators, each one of them with the corresponding Teams, which is composed by, which are composed by either pre-doctoral students, in some cases, some postdoctoral students, groups, teams of seven to ten people, something like that. And uh, in the past, also the teaching department was embedded within the ED Foundation because this was also one of the foundational activities of, of this uh, institution. So this is more or less the role uh, EV Foundation historically had and now have. Now, Dr. Garrido seems like a very busy person and I've, I've known you for a number of years and I know you are very busy. What, um, what, what do you do in your free time? I know you were, until at least until very recently, you shared your responsibilities at EV with your responsibilities as the goalie of your soccer team for your for your town, what what, what do you do for fun? Which free time? I mean, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I mean, I like doing many many things. The problem is that I don't have time. Obviously, first thing for me is my family. 
no doubt about, about that. But the one hobby I have is, as you said, playing soccer. I mean, I've been playing soccer since I was nine years old, something like that, semi-professionally. I still play as a goalie, officially, in the above 30 years old category, which is one category, but it's it's official category, so I still play. I wrote for a, a, a couple of newspapers about soccer. Did you know I, I, I spoke in the radio? I have a program in the radio also about, about soccer. I did not know that, no. My, my research didn't go that far. Did you know I, I was in the in the in the board of a, a soccer team for some years? So I did almost everything. So I think the answer for this is soccer. Absolutely, there's nothing beyond, <laughs> nothing else. Not not unlike not unlike your role at EV, where you've you've ended up doing doing a little bit of almost everything. Yeah, exactly. I we ask everybody that we that we invite to this coffee talks if you could pick you know, one or two scientific big landmarks that have impacted our field the most, what would those be? Well, I think I heard, I heard some conversation uh, with Dr. Niederberger, one of the co-editors in chief of Fertility and Sterility. And, and, and I, I think he was right. I think science flows. So we improve bit by bit. And suddenly there are some quantum leaps, right? So let's pick one quantum leap and some, you know, other things that have progressively contributed to, to our field. So concerning the quantum leaps, I think oocyte vitrification uh, brought a, a, a huge change. It was a game changer. Uh, the possibility to vitrify oocytes and then successfully, uh, you know, pull them and use them with the same rates of success as uh, with fresh oocytes is one of the kind of recent things that changed the way we are doing our practice in very, very few years. And uh, concerning other scientific landmarks impacting our field, but not in a kind of quantum leap, big jump ahead, but, you know, more bit by bit. It's the, the genetic genetic, uh, genetic tests, both in the embryos and in the, in the couples. I mean, we are now bringing to our couples some possibilities in order to increase the likelihood of having a child, but also on the likelihood of having a healthy child, which is not comparable to what we did 10, 15, or 20 years ago. And there are two of them. Obviously, one is the, the preconceptional tests in order to look for uh, mutations being carried by the couple, the donor, so you can do the genetic combination and estimate the risks and then see uh, this is a, a number of diseases that you are avoiding systematically for the children, which is huge. I still remember when I ran the sperm bank years ago, when you received the call from some parent saying, hey guys, the child is at the hospital. They don't know what, what his 
sick off, and probably they are thinking about a genetic uh, genetic trait. So, and and this is probably not well, uh, you know, considered un un until now. And obviously, with the pre-implantation and genetic testing, we are getting more and more cost-effective techniques that are providing in deep information. We are looking more in detail. We are finding some genetic alterations that were not possible a few years ago. And this is contributing to the success on, on, on our field. So this would be my, my two cents on, on this question. Thank you. And in, in your opinion, what will be, do you think that the next big thing or things that, that will impact our field as significantly as these in the next 10 years? Well, uh, a couple of things probably. One is more, you know, more, more specific and probably the other is, is wider. Concerning the more specific, we need to create gametes. We need to create sperm. We need to create oocytes because we are getting good results. The point is that in some cases, we are just forced to replace the sperm or the oocyte. So it's easy with younger oocytes. But what is the case of couples where no sperm is found or where no oocyte is found or where the oocytes are not working because of age or etc. And we need to create functional gametes because these kind of couples have not been benefited from all the advances in, in the reproductive techniques apart from gamete or embryo donation. So I think we, we still have room for improvement there. And uh, the other more general thing is concerning the big hopes that people has on, on personalized medicine. There are big promises. I don't know, I'm not 100% sure of, of this kind of approaches, but it seems artificial intelligence, big data are expected to provide some kind of individual solutions. Meaning that some specific patient or couple treated in the way this kind of techniques tell you are succeeding while doing other kinds of behavior is leading them to, to fail. I think very high expectancies are lying on these topics, on these technologies, on these approaches, but that's what we all hope. We would love to have a computer where you introduce the blood of the couple, some physical characteristics, all the information you have at your hand, and they say, hey, Andres, you need to stimulate the ovaries with such drug, and you need to conduct the transfer on that day of this embryo, and 100%, you will be okay. So I think these are the two, the two different next big things we should provide to, to the patients we treat. This is my, my opinion. Right, I agree. It, it sounds like science fiction, but I pretty much pretty much everything we do was science fiction 20 years ago. Dr. Garrido, it's been such a pleasure having you on our podcast today. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us. 
it was a pleasure. I had fun and congratulations for these, these nice uh, talks. This has been another episode of Fertilipod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.